The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was born in Berlin, her father a Jewish doctor from Latvia, her mother a German Lutheran nurse. The family fled the Nazis in 1933 when she was six, settling in Tel Aviv. By the time she was 36, she had already lived an eventful life, traveling to London and Burma, finding success as an advertising writer, and leaving one husband for another, and then leaving her second husband for a Canadian poet named David Wevel. Her name was Asia Wevel, and for all her dramatic escapades from her first 36 years, it was the events of the next six that would etch her into the annals of literary history. She and her husband rented a flat from a married couple who just so happened to be Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, already being celebrated as two of the 20th century's finest poets. Asia and Ted were immediately stricken with one another, he drawn to what he termed her many-blooded beauty, an air of erotic mystery. For Sylvia, who was already dealing with Ted's infidelities and her own history of depression, it was one more painful thing to add to the overwhelming pile. Within a year, she had taken her own life. Six years later, Asia did the same. The story of Ted and Sylvia has been told and retold many times, from many different angles. But who was Asia Wevel? What about her literary ambitions? Was she, as Plath complained in a letter, a woman who couldn't make a book or poem, just ads about bakery bread? Was she more than Ted suggested when he called her, quote, the one woman Sylvia envied for her appearance, end quote. Was there more to her than that? We have two editors of Asia Wevel's collected writings to tell us the third side of the story. Asia Wevel, today, on the History of Literature. <laughs> Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, and I am glad you're here today, listening away as I chatter away. Oh, I can't wait to share this one with you. Asia Wevel. Now, I will confess that I barely knew her name. I knew Blath and Hughes and, oh yeah, Ted's second wife, the beautiful one, the one who also killed herself, and that's about as far as I got. But guess what? Although Sylvia was dismissive of Asia Wevel for being in advertising, I've seen some of the ads she made. They actually look more like a Bergman film than something we'd recognize as an advertisement today. You wonder if she could have written films or television scripts, and of course, it hardly seems like an accident that she twice wound up with poets. Did she have poetic ambitions herself, and did she have any talent? In a way... We know the end of the story here, with Plath being one of the most brilliant minds of her generation, even of her century. That's hard for anyone to be compared with. But what about at the time? Was there enough there for Ted to think that he was with someone with some depth? Or did he just think, well, Sylvia was brilliant, but that was too much. Her brain, her depression, it was overwhelming, and Austria is gorgeous. Asia, if you look at pictures of her, could be a movie star, and Ted, too, when he was young and ruggedly handsome. But, of course, 
it was Plath who outshone them both, especially Asya. She would quite like to kill me, Sylvia wrote in a letter to her psychotherapist. But let's bring out our guests to let them tell us all about Asya and how she fit in with the Ted-Sylvia-Asya triangle. This is Professor Julie Goodspeed-Chadwick and Peter K. Steinberg. Oh, wait! We've neglected our housekeeping lately, haven't we? How about a number, another, a number, a number, another, another number one. <laughs> Let me start over. How about another number one? Thank you. This is our list of countries that have made this humble little podcast the number one books podcast in their country, for which we are very grateful. So far, we have had Croatia, Norway, the Bahamas, Lithuania, Algeria, Bahrain, Uganda, Iceland, Chile, Finland, Estonia, and now, drumroll, no, my producer says no drumroll, not to worry, I'll just add all the suspense in my voice because I'm very excited to announce, can we have a cymbal crash? Nope, my producer says no cymbal crash. Okay, here we go. I am very excited to announce our next number one country, Ecuador. Yes, Yes, Ecuador, that wonderful place in the middle of the planet, so named because it's right in the middle. The equator. I hope that's right. That's what I always heard anyway. I maybe should have looked that up. Anyway, my producer is nodding. Okay, yes, yes, it straddles the equator. That's how it got its name. So, it's a famous place in my family. As the place my father's cousin spent a dozen dreamy years trying to search for shipwrecked treasure. Funded by actor James Garner, Maverick, Rockford, whom he met in California while working as a parking lot attendant. That's all a story for another day. Today we are celebrating the literature lovers of Ecuador, who, according to Chartable and Apple, have been listening to the History of Literature podcast in sizable numbers, sending us to the top of the charts. Ecuador has a rich storytelling tradition dating back to the Incas, and they are firmly within the Latin American firmament, so to speak. Lots of excellent writers and prize winners. Here's the start to a story called The Gillette by the Ecuadorian writer Abdon Ubedia. The man is sitting in front of the typewriter. Distractedly, he observes the keys, the springs, the sheet metal, that inextricable mechanism that can be seen in the intervals between the types. Sometimes his gaze rests on the ribbon, which he bought a week ago and which still stains the pages with an energetic, oily blue-black. He remains immobile, while through his brain circulate furtive forms, vague ideas, imprecisions, which make him unaware of what he's taking in with his eyes in his useless inventory of the icy baroquism of that old Remington, tall and black, like a machine that might have some purpose at a funeral, like a schematic instrument of evil. Something in his chest prevents him from working or even adopting the proper posture of someone concentrating on work. His ideas are not organizing themselves in his head, and he's not doing much to organize them. It must be the theme of the story which is the problem. The theme of the story is death. Writers and death. Familiar themes for us at the History of Literature, and today is no exception. 
We have some particularly tragic deaths today. So here we go. Asia Wevel is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now are Professor Julie Goodspeed Chadwick, Chancellor's Professor of English at Indiana University, Purdue University, Columbus, and Peter K. Steinberg, an archivist and the author of nearly two dozen essays on Sylvia Plath. Together, they are the co-editors of the new book, The Collected Writings of Asia Wevel, a curated collection of Asia Wevel's letters, journals, poems, and other creative writings. Julie and Peter, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thanks. So I am putting together a week of shows on Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and I'm really interested more in their creative influence on one another more than their personal lives, although it is just inescapable to talk about their their fascinating lives that they had together. And Asia Wevel is certainly an extremely important part of that triangle, but they, she has a, a rich story of her own to tell that sometimes gets lost. So let me start with you, Julie, and ask, how has Asia Wevel commonly been understood or misunderstood by the public? That is a great question. So m- many of us came to Asia through Plath scholarship, mm-hmm. and the early biographies on Plath were especially, I guess I'll say, uh, instructive um, mm. in, in introducing her to readers. Now, Asia, of course, plays a prominent role in, in class studies in terms of, of class biography, but also she has a special role, I think, um, in, in Ted Hughes' work and life as well. And that hasn't been um, studied or written about quite as, as much, although mm-hmm. um, there now is burgeoning scholarship in that regard. So in terms of how Asia is commonly understood, the ways in which she was depicted by especially early Plath biographies, um, but also in the work of Plath and Hughes was instrumental, I think, in, in delivering the way that she has been um, commonly understood to, to our own day. So, for instance, in Plath's work, you know, Asia is uh, depicted as cold and destructive and natural and beautiful. Mm. In Hughes's poems, she is dangerous 
and desirable and destructive and demonic, but also persecuted. And so there's this interesting rift in, in Hughes's poems in which you see Asia as both a victim, but also a perpetrator. And so really then she ends up uh, devolving into this femme fatale archetype. And it, it's so reductive and it, it's so flattened, but it's, it's, and it's not the kind of femme fatale that Plath depicted in, you know, amazing poems like Lady Lazarus, in which you have a femme fatale figure who's also a vigilante, right? And that you can kind of get behind um, that, that character. Asia, as a, as a literary figure um, in, in poetry and, and letters, ends up being the kind of archetype who is intent on destruction. So mm. she is understood as destroying Plath and Hughes and herself and her daughter. And so, unfortunately, I, I think that is the way she's been commonly understood by the public from the 1960s until our own day. And current work is working to um, counter that, that erroneous and reductive and flattened representation. Right. Okay, so I guess that begs the question of what she was like, actually. And Peter, maybe I'll ask you that. And, and is this something that is known primarily, does this come through in her writings? Or is this coming from other sources that you're able to give us a, a more accurate picture of who she really was? Yeah, so I think with Assie Wevel, the way that she has been presented, has been sort of as that homewrecker. She does have a biography that came out 15 or so years ago, maybe called A Lover of Unreason. And that was uh, really kind of the first portrait that had any sort of, I don't, for lack of a better word, authenticity to it in shaping and developing who she was as an actual person. Mm. It collected interviews by people that knew her, you know, as any good biography will, and it quoted from her letters and her journals and things like that. And then Julie's book, Reclaiming Asia Wevel, uh, came next, and that sort of shows a different side of who she is, you know, how she was represented in the writings of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. And what you see in our book, The Collected Writings, is her own voice. And mm. you, get, you get it unfiltered. We've provided contextual footnotes that kind of help spell out some minutia about the, thing that she, the things that she's discussing in her letters and her journals and things like that. And so you see her as a, uh, when the book starts, as the hopeful, young, teenaged person who wants to get out of Israel and go study in England and get, she ends up getting married. She travels all over the world, from Israel to England to Canada to Burma, back to England, back to Canada, back to England, and so on and so forth. So you see her constantly in motion. You see her developing a personality. She could be very funny. Uh, the one thing that I took away from this book uh, that I didn't really get a sense of in any of the previous biographies, at least, was just how gracious she was. Mm. She's constantly thanking people for writing, for sending her gifts, for uh, exhibiting kindnesses, and other things like that. And that's really eye-opening because as that femme fatale, you think, okay, she's a, she's cold and calculating. She's she's broken up marriages. She she goes from man to man to man and whatnot. But that's really 
an incomplete and fragmentary portrait of who she is. And I think our book gives her fuller features. Yeah. So there are a couple of other things we haven't mentioned just before we leave behind her reputation in this love and literary triangle that she was in. Because of the her the end of her life and the the tragic ending of it, it it it's it seems as if she's been used as confirmation of Hughes's monstrosity, or you know that it that he had almost like early biographers, I think, were sort of taking sides and taking the side of Sylvia and saying Ted drove her to this through his actions and conduct, and then look, he did it again a second time to. Ostia. Is that a stereotype or is that a, a, a narrative that is still present or is that something that's been dispelled? So I, I think this story is a tragic one. And with the three principal figures, so with, with Plath and with Hughes and, and with Asia, you know, it, it, it's sort of this uh, you know Greek tragedy where only Hughes is left standing. So I, I mm-hmm. do think it is easy to you know, try to pin blame on, on Hughes. And I, and I don't think he's perfect, you know, by, by any means. But I do think it's a story filled with trauma. And mm-hmm. I think it's a story that we can learn a lot about in terms of what trauma looks like and what the aftermath entails. And so Plath's death by suicide was an incredibly traumatic experience for Hughes. And for Asia too. I mean, ultimately, I mean, so and, and having to try to live in the in the shadow, right, mm. of, of Plath's legacy, not only in terms of like what a brilliant artist, you know, Plath is, but then too, you know, assuming um, the role of partner, you know, of Ted Hughes, and the the caretaker of like a kind of a parent figure, you know, for for Frida and, and Nicholas Hughes, um, and then having a child with Hughes you know, herself. I mean, Asia in, in some ways could not help, I think, but see, you know, Plath as, as a forerunner. And so I, I think the, yeah. the story is a really tragic one in terms of, you know, an untimely death that was, you know, traumatic and, and terrible. And then the, the ramifications of that, I think, ended up um, touching on both Hughes and, and Asia too. I mean, I think we see that in the journals that Peter and I you know, we're privileged to work with and, and, um, and could print. And, you know, you, you see it too, I think in Asia's suicide letter. I mean, Plath was the, the person who, you know, metaphorically was, was between, uh, Hughes and, and Asia and was this, this, this wedge. And so, um, you know, Asia writes about that in, in her journal. She writes about it in, in her last letter. And so, you know, I, I think the relationship with, with Hughes was not a healthy one. I think it had, you know, really loving moments and it had really terrible ones too. And I think you see the, the gamut of that, that play out. And, and, you know, Peter should weigh in on this, but I think that, you know, that's, that's true, um, in terms of class relationship with, you know, with Hughes too, that there were, uh, highs and lows. So, uh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think in terms of Hughes being responsible for, Asia's death. You know, I think Plath's death was um, unfortunately a detrimental influence. Mm. Um, and I think the instability and the, the toxic elements of, of trauma and the unhealthy nature of Asia's relationship with Hughes certainly didn't help. And in fact, Asia writes about that very directly. Yeah. Peter, are, are you aware of it? Was it already becoming an issue for Asia that Ted and and I mean I'm I know they weren't the quite the celebrities that they would soon become but was it 
Was it intruding on their relationship that scholars and fans and people who were discovering Sylvia's writings were having it a heart, were, um, you know, critical of the new relationship or were treating Asya like the other woman? Was that, was that pressure coming internally or was it also coming from the outside world? Uh, it's probably a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I, I think probably as soon as Plath died, it, I, you know, I, you know, obviously I don't know what Ted Hughes was, was going through or thinking, but I, I suspect that that was a fairly significant blow to his life and, and to the way that he might go on to, just to the way he was feeling about Asio level after that. I, I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know that I'm answering this very well. Mm. It, certainly, his family, his his mother and his father, didn't want anything to do with the mistress. Mm. They certainly ostracized her when they were trying to make a family uh, unit down in Court Green in North Taunton in the the mid to late '60s. To so much so that the stories go that you know Ted Hughes' father wouldn't look at her, wouldn't talk at her had his meals in a different room and so on. And, and the mother was there for a while, but then she went back to Yorkshire to the sort of the family home. So it it was not, it wasn't a comfortable situation. And I can only imagine that Plath's friends, Plath's mother, brother, and so on, probably had a very difficult time with the continued presence of, of, of Asia in Ted Hughes's life. Mm. Right. Okay. So, Julie, when you wrote the biography of Asya, or the your earlier book about Asya, were you able to draw upon her writings, or was this were these new to you as well? Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, you know, my 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 work on Asya is indebted to to that first biography, and it's it's you know it's just a wonderful resource in terms of pathbreaking when it came to work on Asya. I mean, that really allowed you know, us to have these important biographical details and to see the life reconstructed mm. um, in, in very important and understandable ways. And so the the work that I did in, in 2019, um, it, it is it is biographical and it's the first literary study of, mm. of Asia. And so what I think is interesting about that book is that it is a book also about about class and Ted Hughes. And so Asia is is the focus. Um, every chapter is about her, but her life is so entwined in terms of scholarship too, you know, with, with the other two that it wouldn't, it, you couldn't, I don't think, at least at that point, write a book about Asia and not bring in Plath and Hughes also. So um, right. I went to, I was on sabbatical and I went to work at Emory in the archive. And mm. that is just a magnificent um, place to work. And so Emory has, Ted Hughes's papers, and in fact, the archive is 2.5 literal tons of paper and materials. And you could wow. spend your career working <laughs> with the Ted Hughes material at Emory and, and never be you know, at a loss of what to say. So um, Asia's papers are subsumed within the, the Ted Hughes papers. And so I knew that there was a, a cache of papers at Emory, and I, I had a, a, a good idea about what I might find, but I wasn't entirely sure if I would have enough material for a book. So I, I went hoping that I would be able to write a book, um, expecting perhaps to produce an article, and then working with the materials there, I was able to read letters um, in their entirety for the first time, 
um, notes, you know, that she had written as well. Many of the miscellaneous texts, actually, that we printed in the collective ranks at, at Bathia Well, I was able to read, you know, for the first time at Emory. And so the, the materials that were missing were the journals. Um, those were deposited mm. at a later date. And so I was also at Emory when they, when they arrived. And in fact, they had not yet been cataloged. Um, oh, and so wow. I was able to, to read those. And then, um, you know, Peter and I decided to move forward with the collected writing. And so with, with my first book on Asia, it was a book that I, I thought was important in terms of forwarding Asia as someone that we needed to take seriously in terms of not only the biographical elements, but also in terms of her contributions as an artistic person, as a successful writer, especially in advertising. But two, I realized that there was this sexist turn, really a misogynistic turn and in scholarship in which, um, you know, we, we love to hate on Asia, that, that she's a mm. scapegoat for all of the, yeah. the problems that that Plath and, and Hughes, um, you know, might have had. Not to say, you know, that that she um, did not contribute. She's Yoko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and I think it, it's important then, you know, to think about her. Um, and what I do in that book is I think about her as a literary and cultural case study. You know, that the way in which we read her life and her contributions have a lot to say. There, it's a mirror, right? It refracts to us like our own values. And so, um, you know, it was time for us to call those two accounts because such important feminist work is taking, you know, place in, in class studies. And, and that was a good time to reclaim Asia. So, um, I was able to work with many, actually, I would say most of, well, maybe not most, maybe like two thirds of the material that eventually we were able to publish in the collective writing. But, you know, Peter and I ended up securing additional materials. So poems, additional letters that her biographers, um, didn't have access to, you know, when they wrote their wonderful biography, additional photographs. I mean, some of these things are in private hands. Some of them are spread out in, in archives, you know, um, in other places and other countries. And so, you know, we had the great fortune to be able to access even more materials than I had access to with reclaiming assay levels. So I would say I probably read maybe two thirds, maybe a little more than that. And uh, that was all archival work when I, when I was writing Reclaiming Asia Level. So, I mean, the, the wonderful, you know, boon of, of this book um, is that the advantage is that now the writings are collated, you know, they're transcribed, they're glossed, they're annotated, they're in one place. And so that is really going to be, um, I think, such a great asset for people um, moving forward, working in Asia and Plath and Hughes. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and then come back with more about Asia Wevel. And, and specifically, I want to ask about her poetic relationship with Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath and her third marriage to a, a poet who was not Ted Hughes. Okay, we are back with Professor Julie Goodspeed-Chadwick and archivist Peter K. Steinberg, co-editors of a new collection of Asia Wevel's writings. So let's talk about Asia as a poet and, and just her interest in poetry. Before she even met Plath and Hughes, she was married to a poet. And what kind of relationship did she have with David Wevel? And what kind of poetry were the two of them writing? Are they? I'm interested in, in whether they were 
kind of in the same vein as Hughes and Plath, or if they were writing different a different kind of poetry? So Asia really prided herself and, and reveled in being a reader mm. of drafts of mm. uh, David Wevel's poems, as well as, as Ted Hughes's later. Although um, she, she comments that David Wevel gave her more access and, and uh, really wanted her, her feedback and Hughes was a little bit more guarded. You know, at the, the poems that David Wevel was writing at, at the time, and, and Asia talks about these in her private writings, are really, uh, I think they're really beautiful. I mean, David Wevel's writing in the, in the 60s was very conceptual, atmospheric, impressionistic, I mean, very contemporary. Mm, um, and, mm-hmm. you know, in fact, he, he was winning awards, you know, at that time. So it was work that, um, that was very forward-looking in, in terms of, of aesthetics. And so, you know, I, I think Athia couldn't help but, but be influenced by that. And so her own, her own poems, Peter and I were able to include a handful of those um, that are extant. Um, in, in our book. And then we were able to republish um, the really glorious translations that she completed of Yehuda Amakai's um, poems. Mm. And so, um, and maybe we can talk more about that in, in a little while, but um, in terms of her own aesthetic with writing, you know, I, I would say that Asia, um, you know, she experiments with sort of formal poetry that's highly stylized. And, you know, the, the themes tend to be like loss, and, and there's, there's, uh, you know, the theme of love, um, love lost, love, you know, being, uh, I don't know, sought after is, is a part of that. And then she, she dabbles in, in satiric, you know, verse two. But I, I think in her writing, to me, the, her, her talent is in capturing images. And I think it's, it's not an accident, um, that in the, the BBC talk that, that she and Hughes gave, um, in the, in the late sixties, um, that she, when they're introducing Amakai's, um, poems, she writes about, you know, um, imagery in, in Amakai's work and how he's a love poet that he focuses on love. And I think those are the things that also interested Asia in her own writing. And so she selected poems that it spoke to her and were of interest to her. And that's because those, those qualities like this, the, um, love and it, it's various, um, permutations and, and themes, especially love lost, resonated with her. As did, I mean, this this interest in crafting the the perfect image. You know, I, I think I think, and I don't, I don't have any substantiation, you know, to say that you know she um, was drawing upon a tradition of imagist poetry. But I, I do think that 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 focus on this like crystalline image um, is something that does define the kind of work that she did, which makes sense because she was a very successful advertising copywriter. Right. And so mm, um, right. It, it, the, the writing that she did for, for advertising, as well as the poems that she wrote and then translated the importance of the, the image is this hard crystalline important aspect of, of the work that, that resonates in, in often symbolic ways, I, I think is, is really key to what I would call her aesthetic. Mm. Peter, I'll put that question to you. Is it on a, I mean, with, with Plath and Hughes, they were almost, I mean, I hate to keep uh, advancing the analogy of Yoko, but, you know, John and Paul were two geniuses and Plath and Hughes were on that level too. And there's this, this creativity that 
flares up between them and the way that they could inspire one another and influence one another and compete with one another. And uh, you can just see the impact that each other has uh, on one another's poetry. Is Asia approaching that or are her poems in a lower tier, would you say? Yeah, I don't want to sound insensitive, but I think they are on a lower level than Plather Hughes. But I, that might be more to do with a lack of practice. And mm-hmm. I mean, we have so few poems, original poems of hers that it's, it's, you know, you don't really get, I don't really get the sense for who she really was as a poet in the same way as I do when I read, say, all of Plath's 600 or so poems that are, that she left behind or the right. thousands that Ted Hughes wrote. But as a translator, I feel like she's far more successful. And I feel like that is an indication that she had a love of language and a love of words, a love of writing, and that she had the ability to create poetry. Now, it's not her original poetry, you know, she's translating, but in a way, in a way, it is original writing. So that's the way I kind of look at her as a poet. I think her her contributions as a translator far outweigh the few uh, poems that are left behind that she wrote that are original. Mm. Julie, is there any evidence that of how Ted uh, viewed her as a poet? Did he take her seriously? Did he take her input seriously? Was he was he tolerant of it? Was he dismissive of it? Or do we know what he thought of Asya as a poet? Yeah, those those are really great questions. You know, both both David Wobble and um, and Ted Hughes and letters that they wrote to Asya, they both compliment her on her writing. They are um, very supportive. They strongly encourage her to pursue writing across genres. Mm. And so, um, actually, both of them were encouraging her to write a film script. Actually, um, various film scripts. And at mm. one point, Hughes w- was interested in in co-writing one with her that they want they had talked about, you know, working on the film together. And and in fact, Asya did begin work on, on a film that's incomplete. And actually, her friend um, Martin Baker was working on that with her, and, and he has the, the pieces of the film, you know, that he has, he has put together so that you can see, like, what her work looks like in terms of, uh, of the visual um, mm-hmm. element. So, so they, they were very encouraging in terms of her writing across genres. And in fact, um, Hughes um, was the person who connected her with Amakai and strongly encouraged her to translate the poems and, and wrote to Amakai about how excellent her translations were, that they were the best he'd ever read. And so she had supportive partners in terms of, of her writing. In terms of you know what Hughes thought of her writing in particular, um, he did want to co, I guess, would I say co-author with her? Um, I mean, there, there's a uh, you know, it, it's just so tantalizing. There are um, pieces of a project they were working on in the Emory archive, and they were working on something called um, like House of Cards or something to that effect. And so Hughes was writing poems about various playing cards, and she was illustrating that. Mm. And then she was also illustrating another work that uh, he had started. And I don't think that those pieces. I don't think that the artwork exists any longer or we don't know, you know, where it is. So, you know, she she was valued in terms of providing feedback to Hughes. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know that we know to what extent she may have influenced Crow. He dedicates Crow to Asia and to Shura, 
because they they die before Crow comes out. And so Crow is dedicated to them. But Crow is heavily influenced by Plath's death. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we know how much, you know, Asia may have influenced the content of of that. But, um, you know, there is, there are, uh, I I don't want to say speculation, there's the belief that she gave some feedback on Gaudete. I mean, so I, I think that she was valued as being an astute reader of, of poetry and of artistic work. Um, she mm-hmm. was valued uh, in terms of the writing she could produce, but also art, the art that she could, yeah. she could, um, you know, draw. Um, and then too, her talent and advertising and filmmaking. Right. I watched an ad that she did and it reminded me of Ingmar Bergman or something. I mean, it's quite, it's in black and white and it's it's quite visual and quite striking and uh i can't remember now what the product was but um i was really struck by it being almost like a short film and clearly she had a lot of uh talent and a lot of ambition and it feels very avant-garde and and forward-looking for its time sounds like it might be the sea witch oh yeah 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 the sea witch which has the mermaids yeah (laughs) yeah Okay, so Peter, Ted famously said that Sylvia was doomed from the start, but Asya's death was avoidable. He said this later in life in a late interview. Do her writings confirm that? Do you get that sense from her journals or from any of her other writings? That's a really good question. I find that her, I mean, the, the you know, the correspondence section and the journal section both end on very dark notes. And of course, we know how her life ended. So I don't know how much that colors the impression that one will get when they read these texts. But I I do find that her life didn't necessarily go the way that she wanted it to go, mm. or that she would have liked it to go. I mean, but she was dealing with really difficult situations you know, she's a single mother. The relationship with Hughes is fraught. And I think that might be the best way you can, the most accurate way to describe it towards the end. She wasn't necessarily getting the commitment that she wanted from him because she wanted that family unit. She had, right around the time of her death, I think the divorce with David Wevel had just come through. So, you know, she she didn't really have that outlet any longer. And so her suicide seems in some ways inevitable towards the end. And I think she had even said to people, maybe she was joking, maybe she wasn't, I don't know, that, you know, she would end her life by a certain point because she didn't want to get too old or she didn't want to get, you know, fat or anything like that. Um, I think I have that right. I'm not sure. But, you know, I mean, she she made decisions and uh, she, you know, whether or not those decisions were the right decisions, it's it's tough to say. But yeah, I I don't know if I'm answering the question or not. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a very difficult question to answer, and I think it caught a lot of people by surprise when Ted said that. It's such a, I mean, to say that about anybody, or for him in particular to say it. Uh, Julie, do you have any insight into that? Does that come through in your reading of Asia's readings? Whether her death was avoidable and why Ted would have thought that that was the case? You know, in, in one of his letters, Hughes writes that Asia really just wanted a ring on her finger. 
Mm. So he knew, as Peter said, he knew how much she wanted a commitment from him, that she wanted to marry him. She wanted there to be a blended family unit. She wanted them to live in the same home together. And so, in fact, um, the last weekend you know, of her life, she and Hughes were looking for a place to live. I mean, so they were looking for um, for homes and, you know, each one, you know, he found a, a reason to, to, you know, fault, you know, to dismiss. And so, um, you know, Asia was, was despairing, you know, they were ever going to live together. And then, too, you know, that's the weekend where he said, you know, well, it's, it's because of Sylvia. You know, she's always going to be between us. And so it, it mm. just seemed very hopeless, yeah. you know, to to Asia. And so I, I think. I think with Asia, I think it, it was easier to pinpoint what the, the triggers were or what the, um, like the convergence of factors might be. You know, so she wanted to marry Hughes. She wanted a father figure for their daughter, Shura. She wanted a home. She wanted stability. I mean, she was, she was lonely. She was a single mother for all intents and purposes, raising her daughter. So even though at one point she was the most successful advertising copywriter in, in England, I mean, one of her commercials won third place at, at Cannes, which is now the Cannes Film Festival. I mean, she was, she was just incredibly talented and gifted in, in many areas. You know, I, I think that that just wasn't enough. I mean, yeah. in the 60s, you know, she was paid as a fraction of what her male counterparts were paid because she was a woman, you know. So, I mean, before second wave feminism, people in Asia's situation made up less than 1% of, of the British population. I mean, she was the head of her house, you know, with a child, and it was just such an unusual situation. Yeah. And there was a lot of stigma attached to her situation, both in the literary world, but then also, you know, unfortunately, at that time, being a single mother was, was something that, um, you know, wasn't supported, you know, the way that, um, that we might think now. So, I mean, I think for Asia, there was a convergence of factors that was sort of easy to pinpoint. And so I think that probably fueled into Hughes's understanding of the situation. Right. And maybe it shows a certain growth of, or, you know, an awareness of Hughes that he definitely did not seem to have in the 60s of what his views of as far as his expectations for the women in his life and for his own role in their happiness or fulfillment or uh, just the part that he was playing. Mm. Ah, okay. Well, she's such a, a successful figure in some ways, and she seems like such a... Uh, she was able to overcome so much adversity, and yet she seems to have found trouble or strife wherever she went. And what was she hoping to find? What What do you think was driving her? I think one of the compelling parts of her story is that she wanted love. Mm. And, I, and I think that that is going to be um, what resonates for, I think, so many readers, maybe of, of our book. But I think too, um, in, in terms of our um, our return to Asia, you know, she was somebody who who wanted, you know, to be loved and wanted to love. And so, um, I mean, I, I think that 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 drove her um, in terms of, you know, where she lived, um, who she married, the kinds of work that she did. And so, I, I think that that that's the element that is, is that's that's compelling and that's fascinating and that is, you know, the the bright parts you know, of, of her life and work, but then also that, you know, that's also the, the tragic part too, yeah. right? You know, that, that it, it eluded her, you mm -hmm. know, to some respects. I think she really wanted security and, and maybe admiration too. Yeah, right. And it, it, it is such a, a, a twist of the knife that it, on the one hand, with her pursuing Ted, 
And with Sylvia's death, you know, Sylvia is out of the way in a sense. But on the other hand, it almost made it impossible for them ever to not have Sylvia as part of the relationship. Just the the guilt and the the shock of the death being part of the relationship that Ted and Asya would have going forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I definitely have got to read your book. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go back and read your first one, Julie, and also I want to read this one that you've put together. The book is for general readers and scholars alike. Is that a fair way to, to characterize it? Yes, I think so. Okay. Good. And it's called The Collected Writings of Asia Wevel. Julie Goodspeed Chadwick and Peter Steinberg, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. Wasn't that fascinating? My thanks to Julie and Peter for joining me. Next week, oh, I am headed on some vacation, people, but fear not. That means I'm working ahead. And you may have noticed that we're closing in on episode 400. We're going to have Mike Palindrome here for that one. We also have Stephen Crane coming up soon. What a wild life that guy had. Who knew? And Dylan Thomas and another Best of History of Literature episode. We've got some more Kafka coming up. Wow. We have a lot of good episodes coming up. (laughs) I think I'm going to subscribe. (laughs) Uh, I hope you choose to join me for all of the upcoming episodes. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.